yoga also is um, a form of, of meditation and it's a, a form of breathing exercises so when you step beyond just those yoga postures you have fascinating approaches on breathing so you do breath control you have clear breathing techniques you use and the interesting thing about the breath is that it's the only way to voluntarily affect your autonomic nervous system You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Wisdom for Wellbeing listeners, welcome to the 100th episode. I am so excited. If we haven't already become acquainted, my name is Dr. Caitlin Harkas. And this episode is exciting because it is the 100th episode and it's also deep diving into something I'm so passionate about, the research evidence of yoga. You know, what conditions of yours, of mind and of body might be benefited from a yoga practice? What styles will be best? What elements of yoga, because it's a holistic system, are going to be most useful for you and who, if anyone, should actually avoid yoga? So this is going to be a wonderful episode, but first I just really want to say again, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, for being part of this community. It is an absolute honor to drop into your earbuds each week and to be a resource on your journey to cultivating mental health and well-being in your life, you know, a sense of purpose, a sense of vitality and energy that can guide you where you want to go. I am so honored if I can be a small part of that. And if you listen to last week's podcast episode with my colleague, Kate Matthew, where she actually interviewed me, you'll have already heard some of my reflections around this landmark. So I'm doing my very best to keep it fairly short here because we're actually going to be diving into an interview with a researching psychologist who has published over 240 articles with a prime focus on the research being the practice of yoga. However, I am sentimental and I am verbose, so perhaps it's hard for me to, uh, to keep this short and simple here. But with it being the 100th episode, I've changed tactics a little bit because it's also the 20th episode of season five, the final episode of season five. And historically, I've used this space to go back over the episodes that were in the previous season and provide you a summary. And I know that it's been a really useful resource for some of you dropping in and wondering what episodes you might want to dive into depending on where you're at and what's going to be useful for you. So where I'm going to point you instead of doing the summary here today is to head to drcaitlin.com. I can really push you there now because the website's been redesigned and it's beautiful. It's much more easeful. If you head to drcaitlin.com, you'll be able to flick through the show notes of previous episodes and get a bit of a sense as to what episodes are going to be useful for where you're at, what you're looking for. You know, there's information around grief. There's information around these tricky brains of ours, how we navigate anxiety, depression, um, 
how we how we essentially survive under real stress and uncertainty. So head to drcaitlin.com and within those show notes, you'll also be able to listen to the podcast interviews themselves as well as find links to listen on whatever platform you use. You'll also find free resources that you can just grab and download a number of guidebooks Um, guided audio, other resources that I'd really love you to have. And you can actually get access to video and audio psychoeducational lessons with skills and essentially a framework to cultivate mental health, to bust burnout and enhance your productivity, along with a curated variety of specially designed yoga classes through my most empowering course, Yoga Brain 101. So that is going to be open for enrollment in the new year. If you get there a bit earlier, there's a wait list and you can just jump onto the wait list and then I can let you know when the doors open. And I tend to offer waitlisters a few bonuses and specifically the bonuses this year are going to be around pranayama, around breathing exercises, which is a bit of a spoiler for today's episode because we're going to be talking about why breathwork, why pranayama actually is so important. So if you go to drcaitlin.com, you'll be able to sign up. And if you've been struggling and would just like an opportunity to go in depth with me on these skills and strategies that I've learned in this process of having the privilege of working with psychological thought leaders in this Western psychological framework, which is then integrated with the wisdom of Eastern traditions, This course, Yoga Brain 101, is certainly worth checking out. I wish I'd had it earlier, you know, particularly considering how for so many of us, investing in our own well-being tends to fall to the bottom of our list when we're in survival mode. And maybe we need a little rejigging, a little bit of a strategy that will support you in leaning more into joy, into vitality. But as you will be hearing today, yoga in and of itself is just comprised of so much goodness that it really is considered a lifestyle. So acceptance and commitment therapy, which underpins Yoga Brain 101, is then integrated with that. It's integrated with a lifestyle approach to offer you support when you're navigating anxiety, depression, and stress right through to improving your relationship with your body, enhancing creativity, and boosting academic and workplace performance. So today's episode, Yoga Brain 101, all incredible resources, I believe, sitting in this place of honoring for this practice that has brought me so much in my life in terms of being able to essentially cultivate, build this life that I lead now that I feel incredibly deeply privileged for. If you head to drcaitlin.com, you can get more information or send me a message on social media, DM me, and I can send you more information there. Let's dive in. So my PhD was looking at the psychoneuroimmunology of a yoga practice, how yoga can be used as a therapeutic intervention for individuals suffering chronic stress, symptoms of anxiety and depression. And one individual who was prolific in the area was Professor Holger Kramer. I cited a number of his papers in my research, and I am just incredibly delighted and honored that he's joining us today. The perfect way to anchor in to welcome in this 100th episode. Dr. Holger Kramer is a professor for the research of complementary medical procedures at the Institute for General Medicine and Interpersonal Care at the University of Tübingen and an adjunct associate professor at the National Center for Naturopathic Medicine 
in Lismore, Australia. So I should mention that his substantive at the University of Tübingen is in Germany. He is an editor-in-chief for the Journal of Integrative and Complementary Medicine, formerly the JACM, and the president of ISCMR. Dr. Kramer holds degrees in psychology, yoga, and medical science, and his PhD thesis was on yoga and pain management, and that received several scientific awards. Building on his own long-standing yoga and meditation practice, he conducts research on the health benefits of mind-body practices and non-pharmaceutical integrative health approaches in chronic pain, cancer, internal medicine, and psychiatric conditions. He's published, as I said, over 200 scientific papers on yoga, meditation, and research methods, in addition to clinical research on the effects of yoga and patient-relevant outcomes. So this is really important. You'll learn more about what outcomes are through the course of today's conversation. And for your knowledge, a major focus of his work is public health research and the use and dissemination of mind-body medicine and the implications for the healthcare system. I think that this element of his training, of his intentionality, really poises him well to offer wisdom to us on how we use yoga because he's really looking at it from a holistic perspective. It's not... I think a one-size-fits-all approach that he uses in his research. As you'll see here, he's really used his research, his skills to parch out for our understanding, you know, what yoga is, what elements are effective. So if you're not practicing yoga already, I'm pretty sure that by the end of this episode, you might be diving into a physical practice, a breathing practice, looking at the philosophy. Let's dive in with Professor Kramer now. Professor Holgo Kramer, thank you so much for joining me here on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here to talk to you and uh, to discuss a bit about the research on yoga. Which is something that you are such an expert in. And in fact, in my preparation for this episode, I was looking through all of the articles, all of the pages and pages, you know, just of the um, titles of the articles that you are an author on, that you have done research for in terms of yoga and evidence-based medicine in this mindfulness-based, yoga-based intervention, I suppose we might call it in this framework. Would you mind, Professor Kramer, just sharing with listeners who may not be familiar with all of the work that you do, who you are, and maybe a little bit about why yoga? <laughs> yeah, really happy to. Um, so I'm a psychologist by training, um, but directly after finishing uh, my master, I turned into medical science, into medical research. So I, I started doing the PhD at, a, the, at the very first department for integrative medicine in Germany. So this was and still is very rare. And I relatively early turned into yoga there and did my PhD on yoga and pain management. And after that, um, continued researching integrative medicine, so mainly non-pharmacological approaches, 
but with a clear focus on yoga, meditation, and mindfulness, um, mainly in cancer research, um, but also for chronic pain, for internal medicine, psychological conditions, um, and, and mainly focusing on clinical research, but also on public health. So who is using what and why? A really interesting approach in this field, actually. Um, and then just a few months ago, um, I changed institutions. So I had been um, research director in the, at the University of Duisburg-Essen for six years now in the Department of Integrative Medicine. And I now became full professor for um, research in complementary medicine approaches at the University of uh, Tübingen, which is the second oldest university in Germany. So it's an institution founded in the medieval age, a really interesting place to be. Um, and it's the first institution to um, have a full professor just for research in complementary medicine. So we're not doing any clinical work. We're just doing research with a clear focus on non-pharmacological approaches. And of course, I will continue doing yoga research. And here I come to the why. Um, I think yoga is really fascinating. So it it looks um, yeah, it it looks very clear and easy when you look at it because most people just see the postures. But actually, yoga is so much more than just doing some, some postures. It's it's a broad, multi-model lifestyle intervention, to be honest. So you're doing so many things in yoga and um, that's why it is used for so many conditions so it's really used as a, a non-pharmacological intervention for therapy and prevention and when i started doing yoga research about 13 years ago um, th there were really good studies but there were loads of gaps in, in, in the research field so there were so much things that yoga was used for, but it was not research, so you could do really pioneering work. So it was a, this was an intervention. I personally felt it, it did me well, so it increased my wellness. Um, and it was not really well researched in this time, although it was used quite a lot in the population. And so that's why I thought it might be interesting to start doing research in yoga. And I got really got fascinating on the positive results we had in many fields. And that's why I actually continued uh, doing research in this field amongst others, but still as a strong focus. It's, I mean, there's so many interesting points there that, you know, it's used across many fields with positive results. So, you know, the fact that it can be effective you know, for individuals with mental health, you know, challenges, stress, distress, individuals with cancer, as you mentioned, pain conditions, that it sounds like it's really versatile. And we'll dive into the research of some of that. But I, I guess when you say yoga is really a lifestyle, it's so much more than just the shapes. Could you talk listeners through how you see yoga? Like, what is yoga? <laughs> Yeah, so this is really a broad field, and I think we could talk a day just just on what actually yoga is. And the interesting thing is when you speak to different yoga practitioners or yoga therapists, especially when they're from different cultures, you will get completely different answers on what yoga is. Patanjali, one of the one one of the most important. Uh, theoretical writers on yoga in the medieval times said um, yoga is calming of the fluctuations of the mind and this is so much different from when we say uh, yes yoga is sports um, and so this this i think this clearly depicts how 
broad the field actually is. Um, and coming the fluctuation of the minds, of course, mean that yoga is a form of meditation. So when you look at, um, at, at yoga studios, but, but even more so when you look at gyms where yoga is teach, for example, um, you, you can do it as a kind of, of exercise, of workout, of sports. Um, and, and yoga works quite well for that. But yoga also is um, a form of, of meditation and it's a, a form of breathing exercises. So you, when you step beyond just those yoga postures, you have fascinating approaches on breathing. So you do breath control, you have clear breathing techniques you use. And the interesting thing about the breath is that it's the only way to voluntarily affect your autonomic nervous system. And, and, and the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system actually is called autonomous because you can't affect it voluntarily, but through the breath you can. So you have an interesting approach here to directly affect how your nervous system works. And, and then you come to meditation, um, which of course has uh, in itself different effects on the nervous system, on the brain, but also on the body. You calm your body down, you activate different uh, regions in your brain. So it's, it's a fascinating field in itself. And then when you take yoga seriously, you also have a yoga philosophy in the background that, for example, teaches nonviolence. And it's, it's uh, not by random that many yoga practitioners are vegetarians because they really practice nonviolence and they, they try to practice a peaceful mind and a peaceful lifestyle. And this also can affect your health. And so it's, um, it, it's really interesting that when you look beyond just those fancy postures, you have a whole world and a whole medical system to affect different um, conditions and also to just promote wellness. And it has been shown that for different conditions, uh, different parts or different um, elements of yoga are important. And that'll be so interesting to dive into different parts of yoga important for different conditions. I think it's so interesting that, you know, we're talking about, yes, there is like a physical element we might see happening at the gym, but that's not the whole story. You know, there's breathing exercises that ultimately potentially describe yoga in such a way as um, the coming of the mind, the cessation of thoughts, that this is really indicative that it's a meditation practice that ultimately there's philosophical elements, that it's a lifestyle that suggests nonviolence, which is something a lot of us would suggest to be a value of ours, regardless of whether we're yoga practitioners. And I have really chatted with listeners in the past how I think yoga pairs so well with, you know, values-based modern psychological approaches too, because there is this way of taking our beliefs on and off the mat, you know, taking valued living on and off the mat and using yoga in its various forms as an experiential playground for what we care about and who we want to be. Absolutely. Generally, we can show up as our best selves when we are healthy, when we are well. So could you share a little bit about the styles of practice that might be useful for individuals who have different health struggles? Mm, absolutely, I'm happy to. So the the, the the most important thing first is is the word styles you use. So there are so many styles out there, and I sometimes have the impression that when a, a yoga teacher, a yoga therapist opens their studio, it's important that they have your, their own brand of yoga. So there are so many new styles also popping up almost every day, and of, of course every yoga teacher and every yoga therapist have their own approach. So there are differences between different. People. 
people. Um, and especially when you look just beyond Western countries, when you look at India, for example, yoga is practiced completely differently. So there are yoga styles in India that don't have any postures included. They're just meditating and or using breathing techniques. And we would not even call this yoga when we look at it, but it clearly is. Um, but we have done an analysis of all available studies of yoga to really see on whether one style is better than another and whether there is a clear winner. And the interesting thing is when you speak to yoga teachers from, from different uh, traditions, they of course have their own ideas why their style fits better with different conditions, but it's mathematically impossible that every style is better than every other. So. Um, there might be one style that is the best or, or there is not. And we looked at it across all conditions, across all available randomized control trials. And we clearly found that there is no significant difference between styles as a whole. So there is no perfect style that is good for everything. And, and, and the, the good news about that is that you don't need to worry so much about the style you use um, because it's you, you can really choose the style that fits with you so there are some styles that are physically demanding others are not there are some styles that have a lot of meditation in it others have not and so you you can pick out the style that really fits with what you want to see in yoga um, and none of those is better than the other um, when it comes to specific conditions, it's it's good to not look at the name of the yoga you use, but on the content. So, for example, it has been shown for physical conditions like meditation, but also for lifestyle or stress-associated conditions like hypertension. It's important to have a breathing and meditation technique in it. So you can have good effects just with the yoga postures. But you have better effects when you add an element of, of meditation, a mental element, or a breathing element. And, and this is also clear when you look at uh, neurobiology. So th there you see that you often have an um, increased um, activity in the sympathetic nervous system, which is a, flight, a fight and flight response we have. Um, and by doing yoga breathing, you can reduce the activity in the sympathetic nervous system and increase the parasympathetic nervous system, which is more the rest and digest nervous system. And so when you want to reduce your blood pressure, then it's clear that yoga breathing helps. Um, when it comes to more um, physical conditions like uh, chronic back pain or osteoarthritis, then it generally seems to help to add physical conditions like yoga postures. But even here, there are studies showing, for example, for osteoarthritis, when you're severely affected and you cannot really do fancy yoga postures on the mat, it even helps to do um, yoga on, on a chair and just to do very slow and minor movements, and it still helps dealing with osteoarthritis. So it's good to add some physical part, but it doesn't have to be a strong and physically demanding exercise you add. And yeah, so I think for most conditions, it's good to have a multimodal yoga approach to not just pick out some postures or some breathing exercises, but to do a holistic approach but it's important for some conditions like lifestyle, mental health, to add breathing and meditation and to make sure that it's part of the style you choose. And for chronic pain, it's, it's good that you, when you have some physical activity and not just meditation, although this already helps, but it helps more to add some physical activity. 
Okay, listeners, so I hope you're kind of listening and going, okay, what's going on in my life? What are these components that are going to be important for me? It's interesting that you mentioned the breath again. You know, the breath, it sounds like in all areas is really important. The pranayama, as um, it might be termed in yoga practice, and you described earlier how the breath rests on the border of the conscious and the unconscious, that it can really help us move from the sympathetic nervous system state or the fight or flight to the rest and digest response, that it has this amazing quality where it can shift uh, a nervous system response in a way that you know we can't so easily control our heart rate or where the blood's being directed in our body. True. It's, there are yogis said to be able to do that, but I don't think we will ever reach the stage here. <laughs> Perhaps not myself anyways. <laughs> yes. you know, maybe listeners will go for it. So with this in mind then, so that if an individual has a specific health concern, there's been some guidance around the different um, elements, the different components that might be useful in their yoga practice. What is the research broadly? So I might ask if it's okay. I know you've recently done a meta-analysis around depression and yoga, and I have a particular interest in mental health, perhaps listeners as well, although we'll touch upon the physical health concerns because I don't know that they're all that separate. But what is the research around you know, depression and yoga? Uh, yeah, there is a, quite a broad field of research, and I was um, really impressed when I started doing yoga research how broad the field is, but I was even more impressed to see how much new research is now coming up every year. So we, we had also looked on the, the history of yoga research. So we did a bibliometric, a bibliometric analysis to see what yoga research is published, when it was published, when it came out, what was the content. And you could clearly see that before um, the, before the 2000s, um, there was very few yoga research. So there were some, some pockets of excellence where yoga research was done. So mainly out of their own interests. So for example, there were cardiologists, they were also practicing yoga on themselves. And they came up with the idea, okay, we could do a study on yoga for hypertension. So they did the study. And then the field was, was calm for another two or three years before someone said, I'm practicing yoga and doing research in, um, I, I don't know, low back pain. And then they did a study and that there is a, now a, um, a, a clear yoga research stream. This only happened in the last, say, 20 years or, or perhaps 30 years. So it's, it's a relatively new field and it's now strongly growing. So there are... 70 to 100 uh, new randomized controlled tr uh, trials published every year. And um, many of those trials have focused on depression, but most of them actually did uh, when they researched physical conditions. So there is, is quite good research uh, that looked at, for example, yoga for side effect of cancer or cancer treatment. And one of those uh, symptoms they looked at, for example, was, de was depression. And, and there is, is good research, for example, showing in cancer that yoga can reduce cancer-related depression. Um, and, and even in the long term, and, and you know is that many people affected by cancer actually have depression. But there also is now some research looking at um, people with elevated levels of depression. So people we would not call clinically depressed, but they who report depressive symptoms and they are bothered by those symptoms in daily life. And there is good research now showing that yoga could be really helpful for them. So that yoga could reduce uh, their depression rate, they, it could reduce their accompanying anxiety, could increase their general quality of life. And um, 
yoga does it even better than uh, related techniques like exercise, for example. So exercise is a good antidepressant, but yoga seems to be better. It's not perfect research. So it, it, it has its shortcoming, it has its limitation. But the first hint shows that yoga seems to be better than other forms of physical activity, but also seems to be superior to other forms of relaxation. So when you take out those those elements like exercise, like relaxation, and compare it to holistic yoga, yoga seems to be superior. There it's is incredible. also research. It is, yeah. <laughs> so it, it should be this way in theory, but it also seems to be um, in practice. And, and as I said, we don't have definite conclusions here. So it's it's early research. It's research that is not well funded. Uh, research has made some mistakes in doing those studies. It has some limitations because the field still is in its infancy. So 30 years of research is nothing. So um, they're still learning. They're still improving and they are clearly improving the methodology but the first hints are really interesting and i i would not hesitate to recommend people who have an have some symptoms of depression in their daily life or some symptoms of anxiety in their daily life um, to recommend them to try yoga if if they have some sort of association with yoga if they say i might be interested to do that, I would definitely recommend to try because it might help with their depressive symptoms. When you look at clinical depression, the, the picture is a bit different. So there are some trials showing that yoga is also effective for major depressive disorder, which is the most important uh, de depressive disorder um, that, that we have. Um, but there are other trials that did not show an improvement for patients with major depressive uh, disorder when they practiced yoga. So um, there are also no hints that it would harm. So I would say that it's definitely worth a try because we know it has antidepressant properties, but it should definitely be done in addition to um, guideline therapy. And, and this mainly includes psychotherapy. It, it might include antidepressant medic medication, but normally it, it does not. So the most important part definitely is, is psychotherapy. And this can be complemented with antidepressants and or yoga. And I think it will be worth a try there too. But the evidence is not this clear yet. I think this is so interesting because, you know, we often, you know, in the, in the field of psychology would say, oh, yes, you know, movement exercise is really important. It's an anxiolytic. It's an antidepressant. It's one of the most effective anxiolytics and antidepressants out there. And then hearing that yoga might actually be even more effective than exercise more broadly, that this really specific movement-based form that is, you know, embedded, infused, you know, in a, in a broader sense with meditation, with pranayama, with philosophical lifestyle style tones, that that's actually even more profound in its effect. I think that's really incredible. I, I think so too. And uh, sorry for always coming back to the breath, but I think pranayama is really critical here. And um, w w when I look at my own yoga practice, so I started about 15 years ago to, to uh, practice yoga, and I had extremely difficulties uh, with, with practicing pranayama. So I found it extremely easy to do all the postures. I, I, I'm not really uh, such used to exercise, or I'm, I'm not this fit, but, but it was relatively common to do some physical postures because we were all used to, to, to moving and to, to adopt different postures. Um, but I found it extremely difficult to uh, do pranayama in the beginning, but 
through my own experience, but even more through through my own research, I, I really came to to the conclusion for myself that pranayama really is a key element of yoga. So there are some yoga styles that cut it out, and I don't think it's a good idea because um, you you really have unique uh, unique effects in the nervous system and, and in the brain you only achieve uh, through yoga for for example uh, there are studies looking at heart rate variability and heart rate variability is a relative interesting um, physiological measure of stress so when you're stressed your your heart rate um, reduces variability so um, a broad variability in your heart rate is a sign of good health um, and through yoga pranayama you can increase the variability of your heart rate and this means you can reduce stress and you can increase general well-being even on a physiological level and when you add postures to that you don't further increase uh, the heart rate variability so there seems to be some unique features around uh, pranayama and when you combine this with meditation and with with exercise both of them known to be antidepressant and perhaps even with a healthy lifestyle and with um, with the, I hate the word positive thinking, but, but a positive way to think and a positive way to treat your mind, um, then it should not be a real surprise that you have more antidepressant effects than by, by just doing exercise. But I myself was uh, was surprised too when I looked at it first. So it's, I think it's, it's natural because exercise is such a strong um, treatment in itself. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's, I mean, I actually just was doing a workshop on breathing exercises and talking about heart rate variability. So it's lovely to hear it come up here because this is such, such an important area and perhaps underutilized in terms of it being such a treatment for, for distress and both, you know, of mind and body. Now we've talked a little bit about how the research you know, looks like it's trending in this direction where we can say, okay, you know, yoga is really effective in terms of mood. Some studies are suggesting in terms of um, major depressive disorder, but there needs to be more, you know, it's a bit patchy. And I, when I was conducting my own research as part of my dissertation, you know, struggled with some of the things that I think you're alluding to in terms of the quality, you know, how you get really big numbers when there's pharmaceutical trials, you know, it's thousands of individuals who might be given um, a tablet that, has an active ingredient or a placebo, like individuals who are part of a yoga trial know that they're getting yoga or they're not. Would you describe for listeners, like what, what do we mean when we're talking about quality of studies and what are gold standards, double blinds? Would you mind explaining that? Sure, happy to. Um, yeah, and you're, you're touching a really important um, issue when we come to to yoga research, but also to to other fields of non-pharmacological research, like exercise research, like psychotherapy, for example. That the gold standards we have in clinical trials are shaped around pharmacological research. So when 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 we look at um, descriptions of clinical trials, then they're normally just focusing on pharmacology. Um, and there are great gold standards that have evolved for pharmacological trials. So, so for example, um, you, you normally start with uh, doing laboratory experiments. So you, you look at interesting new candidates for, for example, an antidepressant, and then you do laboratory experiments. Um, 
in, in, in vitro, so just with cell lines, and then you do it with, with, with animals, a part of research I don't personally like, and happy I don't have to do that. And, and then you do first trials to look at um, things like um, pharmacokinetics, so how the, um, the, the pharmacological approach works in a healthy body, and then you approach um, patients, you do first trials, and then you do a randomized controlled, uh, placebo-controlled double-blind trial where, you, where one group gets the, uh, the drug and another group gets a placebo, and neither the patients nor the, the therapists or the researchers know who is getting what. Um, and based on that, you get only the specific effects of the drug you're testing. And when you have an effect, you can say, this is just the drug. Uh, so when you look at yoga, and, and after that, you, you can use it in uh, clinical practice. And when you look at, at yoga and uh, both practice and research, um, it's, it's interesting that you start the other way around. So you start with clinical practice. So people are using yoga for their back pain. And just because they are using it in daily life, researchers said, okay, we might research that. So no one would, would, would say, okay, so perhaps we invent a new um, um, asana or a new pranayama to treat um, uh, chronic low back pain. They look at what people are doing in clinical practice. Um, and then they say, okay, we might research just that. And um, then you set up a trial and there is, there is the next problem because you uh, don't have very good options to do a placebo-controlled yoga trial. Um, I actually found one placebo-controlled yoga trial that is out there and um, it, it's called placebo-controlled yoga and it's an Indian uh, study on uh, pranayama for asthma and they have invented um, a, a lung exerciser that mimics uh, the breathing frequency of a specific pranayama practice so it prolongs the outbreath um, and they constructed um, another um, lung exerciser that did do nothing so it did not prolong the outbreath it just looked the same as the other one and they compared the original uh, lung exerciser with a prolonged outbreath to the placebo lung exerciser and the verum was superior to the placebo. Um, so this is the only um, placebo-controlled yoga trial that I found and I personally am not sure whether we can really call this yoga because you use, you use a device to really mimic just specific small part of a specific pranayama practice. Um, but beyond that, if you want to do holistic yoga, including breathing, meditation, pranayama, uh, uh, sorry, um, um, asanas, you, you can't do a placebo-controlled trial. And um, the yoga teachers, the yoga therapists, they know that they are uh, teaching yoga. And also patients, even if you don't tell them it's yoga, they will know after the first class because it's so specific what you do there. Um, and, and that's why we need a different approach to yoga research than we have in pharmacology. And this is why it's so difficult to talk to many people about yoga research because we are talking about different things. So we are generally talking about comparative effectiveness. So we're not comparing yoga to a yoga placebo because no one has ever invented one and I'm quite sure that no one ever will. Um, but we're comparing yoga to something else. And this could be just what the patients are doing anyway. So we can compare um, usual care, so what their 
doctor or their alternative medicine practitioner told them to use. Um, and we add yoga for one group and we do not for the other one. So this is the easiest comparison, usual care plus yoga versus just usual care. But we can also compare yoga to exercise. Like in the depression trials, we know that exercise is effective. And so we are comparing yoga to something that is common in some uh, some elements, but not in others. And we see which of those is superior to the other. And this is comparing different effective interventions. And you can't blind that. Of course you can't. But it's the same as in psychotherapy. You also can't blind psychotherapy. And um, also when you look at conventional medicine like surgery, for example, that there are some placebo-controlled blinded trials where you blinded the patients, but you can't blind the surgeon. They know whether they do a true surgery or not. So it's not just with yoga, um, but it's, it's a, uh, a difficulty that is often overlooked in, in other approaches. Um, and when you accept that, then you can do great yoga trials. For example, it's important to, to randomize patients. So many pa people um, have a preference for or against yoga. So um, Older men, for example, often don't really want to try yoga. So they have prejudice around yoga. It's shown in uh, epidemiological and public health research, while uh, younger educated women uh, often have a prefer preference for yoga. So when you have a mixed group made of different age groups, um, of, of different gender, of different education level, and you ask them on whether they want to do yoga or they want to do exercise for their condition, you, you have differences in the groups that stem from self-selection. So the young, um, educated, uh, well-situated woman will choose yoga, and uh, the older, perhaps not so educated men will choose exercise, and you can't compare the groups. That's why it's important to randomize them and to not have them choose on your own. Um, and uh, you can easily do that in yoga, and you also can, for example, blinds the people that collect data. So you can't you, you can't um, cheat the people who are doing yoga or who are teaching you because they know what they're doing. But those who collect data, for example, who um, collect um, blood pressure, you can blind them that they don't know what groups of people are in. Um, and you, you can be very strict with what you do, how you collect data, what you report. You can be very rigorous in other fields. The only thing you can't do is uh, placebo-controlled double-blind trials. And that's what I mean with, with good quality, because early yoga trials have not been this rigorous regarding randomization, blinding outcome assessors, but in other fields, they have neither. So it's not just a problem with yoga. And we have a strong increase in quality in the last um, 20 years. So the quality is getting up in, in, in a good way. And now we have really reliable yoga trials showing um, effectiveness in many fields. So with the increased reliability, we're seeing effectiveness like that's maintained. That's not something that the early data suggested was there. And now with these more rigorous trials, we're going, oh, actually, we got this wrong. It sounds like more and more, we're actually seeing better results or at least stronger effects. Perhaps maybe that's the sophistication or the measures used. Um, yeah, it, it depends. There have been uh, early yoga trials that had uh, enormous effects, actually. Okay. Um, but, but there were other trials also that failed to, to find effects. And, and you, you've mentioned um, 
group size, for example. So um, group group size, and as a psychologist, you of course know that, um, group size is mainly important to find positive effects. So many people think when you have a positive effect in a small trial, this will not stay true when you increase sample size, because with sample size, you increase rigor. But actually, with larger trials, you have more chances to um, find significant effects even when they're small. Um, so, um, for example, there are drug trials that use thousands of, of patients and that find significant results, but they would not have found them in smaller trials because uh, the, the differences between groups are extremely small. And um, when you don't have much money and early yoga research and even uh, current yoga research does normally not have much money. You have to get along with, with small group sizes. And so you need really large effects to get those significant. And now you have a bit larger group sizes. You, I, I don't think there are many trials that have thousands of patients, but there are some that have a few hundreds. And um, so you have better trials now, you have a better methodology, you have a more refined assessment, and there are slightly larger than the early trials. And that's why we now find, even with a better methodological quality, we found more positive results. And, and that's the best thing that could happen to, to the field, that you uh, have a better quality, you have larger trials, and you still find positive effects in many, um, many studies, not in all studies, of course. So yoga is not a cure for everything, but it's good in, in their surprisingly large array of conditions. Not a cure for everything. That's important. And I think important for listeners who are kind of going, oh, wow, this is like the magic wand that I've been searching for. And I think there's a number of other variables too, isn't there? Like in terms of when we're talking about therapeutic trials, this also applies to yoga trials. There would be an interaction in terms of the teacher's personality and the participant's um, be it client or student's personality, that there's these interpersonal dynamics that no doubt come to bear in these situations. Listeners, just for those of you who maybe don't have the background in statistics, in terms of the effect size and um, meaningful difference that was being alluded to, I think what you just really need to know is when we're talking about effect size, that's when we say, oh, something significant. Um, we found a statistically significant effect. And then we look at the size, like how great of a difference was that, you know, a clinical clinically meaningful difference. So when Professor Kramer was referencing those large um, drug trials, the pharmacological trials, where they might have had a statistically significant effect, but it's very small, it kind of means while it's significant because the numbers are so big, the change is so small, it might not be meaningful. So these yoga trials, the fact that we're seeing effects means that it's likely very meaningful, like it's a bigger effect that we're seeing. Am I capturing that right? Um, Absolutely. And, and th thanks a lot for clarifying that. And, and you mentioned a really important thing uh, like um, interpersonal dynamics in group, for example, and like um, the, the effect the group in itself has. So, so do, doing something together in a group of, of, for example, people who have the same condition like you, but you might also be beginners in that and to increase your ability together has a strong effect. And um, when, when we look again at drug trials um, and placebo control, Control, you'd like to to cut out those unspecific effects, but I think in yoga and in in other non pharmacological approaches, or the unspecific effects are extremely important. So when you 
uh, practice in a group, you have specific group effects. When you practice on your own with a therapist and you get a lot of attention, it has a specific effect. And, and you can't really differentiate um, the specific yoga effect from the unspecific yoga effect because it, it's, it's a, a whole system and you need both effects and and when you when you take out the personal interaction in yoga you already reduce the effect you have and i i, I think that's that's the uh, difference to to many uh, traditional ways we, we look at research um and you you need all those things in a, in a multi-model uh, intervention like yoga with regards to safety, you know, you mentioned with depression, like we, we're seeing some some effects that could be really useful for some people, maybe the various elements um, that we aren't necessarily as easily able to label in terms of how this effect is brought about. It seems like the yoga intervention is effective for some, but you said not not particularly harmful for others. So no harm in trying. Are there safety considerations that we do need to be mindful of in a yoga practice? Mm-hmm. Um, there are so uh, safety has long time overlooked in yoga because um, many people who did the research were really convinced of the practice so they were practicing for themselves and they were convinced that it cannot be harmful and and many researchers still still do so they don't really look at, at the safety of yoga and and i think it's extremely important to not only look at efficacy but also on safety and there is research uh, from from epidemiological studies who really looked on um injuries that happen through yoga in daily life. And one can say that about 20%, so one in five yoga practitioners has ever been injured by yoga. So there are, is definitely evidence that injuries happen in yoga. Most of those injuries are really transient and minor. So it's like uh, some major uh, strains or some uh, so, so some injuries because some, someone fell during a posture. Um, but there also are some reports of serious um, harms, um, like, um, like stroke, for example, that seems to be associated with yoga practice. Those are very, very rare, but they did happen. Um, so one has to be mindful that yoga can be associated with injuries. When we look at the rate of injuries, then yoga is really not harmful. So we have, uh, we, we often look at injuries per thousand hours of practice. So for example, for yoga, we have 0.7 injuries every thousand uh, hours of yoga practice. When we look, for example, at um, at uh, running or uh, cardio training, we have 2.5 injuries every thousand hours of yoga practice. And so, um, and, and I think with, with soccer, we have around four and with skiing, we have eight. So when we, co- but even when we compare it to relatively low impact uh, things like cardio training, yoga already has a much lower injury rate. So it's, it, there are injuries associated with yoga, but there seems to be not very common and not very serious. Um, there are some risk factors. Um, one risk factor is a chron- when you have a chronic condition. So when, when you really do yoga to get along with a chronic condition, it's important to speak to the yoga therapist, the yoga teacher, that you have this condition and that you need to adapt some of the practices um, you do. So uh, and, and when you have a good or at least average yoga teacher or therapist, they will let you adapt on that. When they, when they don't, just change the teacher. Walk away. Um, <laughs> yeah, just go somewhere else. Um, and, and the other uh, risk factor that can even easier be controlled is that you increase your injury rate when you 
don't learn uh, yoga under supervision of a yoga therapist or yoga teacher. So when you start uh, learning yoga, you should do this uh, with, with a human being as it should be in the room. So it's, it's now relatively easy to learn yoga from YouTube tutorials. Uh, in the past, you learn from books. Now you learn from YouTube. Um, but this increases the injury rate because there is no one who looks on whether you do it correctly. One, once you learned how to do yoga, you can easily practice on your own. This does not increase your injury rate. But when you start, someone should look, someone who is experienced with doing yoga should look on, on what you do because some of the movements of the techniques you do are very unfamiliar to what we normally do. And there are ways to do it wrong. Um, so this is the best hint, uh, best uh, idea I can give to reduce injuries. And then it's, there are some harms, but they're much less than with other uh, movement-related uh, techniques. I wonder if some of that is the mindful awareness, you know, that you're naturally like checking in with how your body's feeling and responding as opposed to sort of the no pain, no gain mentality that might exist <laughs> in other areas. <laughs> So there's some really key points there. I, I think the point about, you know, if you're, if you have a health condition and even if you don't, you know, if you're going in and saying like, I'm a little bit, this doesn't feel right in my body. I want to modify this or I need to modify this. It is so important that we have teachers who are supportive of that. So, you know, just because someone is a teacher and you've gone to that studio or that class, it doesn't mean listeners that you have to keep going there. You know, you can change and shift and perhaps find different styles or different practices that incorporate more pranayama or more meditation. Some of these modalities, these practices that um, that we're learning are so important to our healing journey and to learn from a real human being that, you know, when you're further further on in your yoga journey, it might be less important in terms of health and well-being and safety considerations. But in those early days, there's something to be gleaned from the one-on-one well, not necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, but the real person effects. And I wonder if the group in the beginning too, um, you know, Professor Graham, what would you say, like kind of being around other people, learning the practice, I wonder if there's something healing in that. I, I think so. I'm, I'm not aware of, of any research actually comparing yoga in the group to, to, to yoga on your own. Um, but this is definitely has effects we know from, from other uh, areas of research. So we know this from, from psychotherapy, for example, but also from group dynamics research, that, that a group is really important. And, and as we have spoken on before, I think learning something together in a group is important. So it, it's great when there is a beginner's class, for example, when you start, that you have your own advances and to also see that some people learn first and others are a bit slower, they might be a bit more impaired in, in their physical um, conditions they have. And um, if, if, if you have a good yoga teacher, and I think most yoga teachers will do that, they let you learn in, in, your, own, um, in your own speed and in your own way. And, and I think that that's a great way to increase um, self-confidence and self-empowerment um, and, and also the idea that um, we, we can do it all in our own way while we are perhaps sheltered in, in, in a group of people who are doing the same thing together. I think that's important. I don't know of any research, but when we extrapolate from other areas of research, I would be surprised if the group would not have any effects. Yeah, yeah myself as well. I, I'm definitely <laughs> a fan of groups. And, you know, Professor Graeber, as we, as we wrap up today, is there anything else that you want to offer listeners who might be yoga curious, interested in starting a journey or figuring out how they incorporate yoga as part of their well-being practice? Um, I, I think we have 
touched most important areas, I, I, I would just suggest to try out. So there are so many interpretations of yoga, so many ideas of what yoga might be, that I'm quite convinced that there is a yoga out there for everyone, because yoga can, can be a, a, a really, as you said, no pain, no gain exercise approach. It can be just some form of, of meditation or relaxation. It can, there are even a traditional Indian ways of yoga that just mean to read a book. So there is, is, is the yoga of wisdom, where you, you just learn a yoga philosophy. And uh, science have also shown that uh, studying yoga philosophy is associated with, with uh, a be better uh, subjective well-being. Um, so there are so many ways you can do yoga. So um, even when the first approach did not feel good, I, I would suggest to try uh, some some other approaches. And um, even if there is none yoga for you, uh, there of course are great other approaches. So um, I, I, I don't want to convince people to do yoga, but I think it's it's a great offer. And research shows that it's uh, it's effective in many fields. But if if it's not the, the way to practice for you, there are also other things you can do, like like mindfulness, like meditation, but also exercise for many conditions. And I think um, yoga is is one great approach uh, we have and, and many people um, feel attracted by yoga so it's great to have this approach and to be able to offer it to, to different people to reach whatever goal they have with it. I love that. It's not a hard sale, but it's an <laughs> offering that's out there as you so beautifully put. Professor Gabriel, where can listeners find out more about what you're doing? Are there any particular papers, links, websites you might direct them to? Or, yeah, if they wanted to keep in contact. Mm. Um, not really so much on, on my research because... Um, uh, <laughs> Um, there, there, of course, are some some summaries of what I have done, but but they are mainly in German actually. Um, but but it's 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 good. For example, when you want to get more familiar with yoga research in, in general, it's it's good to, for example, look on the associations. So there are national international associations for yoga teachers and for yoga therapists, and um, they often, um, and I think most of them now have some collections of um, uh, yoga research that is also out there and they, they, they sum it up. So I think this, this is good to, to look at associations uh, that really collect um, the, the evidence that is out there. And, and there also are some, some, some good books available, but, but I, I will not name uh, specific ones because I'm not so into the uh, the, the English-speaking uh, literature that is out there. Well, I, I do have a link that <laughs> compiles Perfect. all of your articles, so I'll pop that in the show notes, listeners, Fantastic. so you'll be able to grab it there. Uh, Professor Kramer, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. I think it's so important for listeners to understand the evidence of yoga. It's not some, you know, hippy dippy woo woo practice. There's a lot of really solid evidence and it's not just what we're seeing in gyms. Like it's a really holistic um, lifestyle practice that has various components and that these components are incredibly useful and perhaps different elements more useful for specific conditions. So I think that's really useful information for us to all have. It's really important. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was, was really great talking to you about this fascinating field of research and how it can really help uh, people increase their well-being.
Incredible, right? Yoga is a practice, a lifestyle that has so much to offer in terms of our mental, our physical health. It affects so many systems of our bodies because they're all interconnected, which I guess is the beauty of mind-body medicine and mind-body practice. And as you heard, you know, there's, there's a role for psychological and pharmacological interventions as well. It's not necessarily that yoga is for everyone. However, if it is feeling interesting to you, please explore it. And if integrating a yoga practice with modern therapeutic skills in the form of what I would call acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training because it's used in a coaching facility as well. Like it's used for supporting individuals, not just to survive, but to also thrive. You might be interested in my course, Yoga Brain 101 that I was mentioning earlier. It really is the place where I've had the honor of bringing together my skill sets in these different domains and offering an integrative, you know, step-by-step step practice for you so that you can follow along. So you can take these small projects that you'll be guided in through the course of the course, make small implementations daily, weekly, monthly to build a life and a lifestyle that feels supportive of you moving into the best version of yourself, where you feel vital, where you feel purposeful, where you don't have to just exist in this space of struggle, survival. If you are interested, head to drcaitlin.com and you can go on to the learn with me tab and explore yoga brain 101 or drcaitlin.com backslash yoga brain. Of course, you can DM me at drcaitlin on any social media platforms as well. If you do have any questions or comments from this episode, from the 99 episodes that were before it, this being the 100th, or of any of the work or offerings that I have, I'd love to connect. You know, I love to know who's part of this community. And those of you who have taken um, a few moments to reach out on social media or to send me an email and tell you, share with me a little bit about what's been useful or what you'd like to see, I value that so much. I know your time is precious. And I honestly, truly appreciate you being being here, being part of this and moving towards cultivating well-being in your life and ultimately the life of your friends, your families, everyone who you touch. I'm wishing you a wonderful Christmas in 2022 if you're listening to it now. If it is 2023 when I'm dropping into your earbuds, here we go. <laughs> Let's move into this world ahead. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.